Good morning to you. Leadership guru John Maxwell contends that a leader is one who knows the way, who goes the way, and who shows the way. Foreign policy expert Henry Kissinger argued the task of the leader is to get the people from where they are to where they have not been. Ronald Reagan used to say that the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He's the one that gets the people to do the greater things. Now, all of those statements apply to a man that we've been studying for a while, and that man is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of Scripture's great leaders. And so, we're investing several Sundays in Nehemiah 6.15 through the end of chapter 7, in our journey through the book of Nehemiah. And from these verses, we're learning leadership lessons from Nehemiah's notebook. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 7. Nehemiah 7. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, just reach out and grab that blue pew Bible in front of you. And on page 508, you should find Nehemiah 7. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Father, we invite you today to teach us from the Word of God. We invite you today to uh, unleash the lion, as it were. A lion doesn't need to be defended. It needs to be let out of the cage. And so we pray that you would show us from just a slender few Scriptures, the first few verses in Nehemiah 7, verses 1-4, to that you would point into our hearts to indelible truths that we would be a a church that, that makes disciples well, and that perpetuates the work of the ministry so that it lingers long after we are no longer here. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Now the Word of God says this in Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanan and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, to those two men, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. And the city was wide and large, and the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now that's our text. It's a short text today. But in case you missed us on the last few Sundays, if you go into your bulletin, you're going to see that there were a number of points, and we're just going to review those. Those are from Nehemiah chapter 6, and then our points today at the end will be from Nehemiah chapter 7. Over the last couple Sundays, we saw from Nehemiah 6 that biblical leaders complete their God-given mission. They don't just make a good start. The Bible says that he completed the work on the wall. And he did it in 52 days. Uh, Biblical leaders rally God's people to do things only God can do. What 50,000 Israelites did not achieve in 95 years, Nehemiah was able to achieve with God's help in 52 days. Number three, biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that even their detractors and opposers reluctantly recognize the hand of God. You see that those that were causing problems throughout the story, when they saw the wall went up, they realized it was the hand of God and great fear 
possess their hearts. Number four, uh, biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that God gets the glory, not the organization that they lead. They didn't say, wow, thank goodness we have Nehemiah. Good thing that we organized. No, they said, look at what God has done. Number five, biblical leaders understand that the completion of one task is not the end of the opposition. Uh, just as soon as the wall was built, there were these letters going back and forth and challenges in Nehemiah's life, and the work was still being pushed back by the enemies of God. Number six, biblical leaders understand that some of our own team are, are compromised and double-minded. Who was it that was giving uh, these uh, the Tobiah the toady his information? Well, it was the nobles of Judea. It was the very people that were helping him build the walls were, were giving information to the enemy. Uh, which is bringing us to number seven. Biblical leaders understand that some saints can't tell the good guys from the bad guys, even when God is at work in a work. So, so here's Nehemiah, used of God to do this incredible thing. He's God's man, he's God's leader, and yet some of God's people who are double-minded and compromising are selling him out because they're really not sure who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And that brings us to number eight. Biblical leaders understand that some friends are lurking to be leaking. Everything that Nehemiah said was reported back to Tobiah the toady. And uh, he was constantly hearing reports of how wonderful Tobiah the toady was. Today, we move from chapter 6. That's what we mind in chapter 6. We move to the beginning of chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we're going to learn a couple of very important lessons that I think every church needs to really uh, wed to their ministry ethos. Or we're going to have big challenges in the years ahead. And Nehemiah knows he will not be their leader forever. One day, Nehemiah will have to return to Persia and be the cupbearer he was in chapter 1 when he was told to go. Uh, God opened the door for him to go and serve for a season in Jerusalem. But he knows he has to go back. And this is a truth that every leader must understand. That their role, the leader's role, is always an interim role. The role of the leader is always an interim role. Every pastor is an interim pastor. Did you know that? It's true. Some have an interim that lasts a few years, and some have some that last several decades. But one day, God is going to change out His workmen in every work. And since that is true, every leader ought to leave a legacy. Not in buildings or past glories, but in workers who carry on the work long after the leader no longer lingers. Amen? That is essential. I didn't hear a single amen. You need to think about that. Because that is the difference between the church existing or perishing in any location. This is a vital subject that we're on today. And so good leaders, they achieve this, this lasting lingering, by appointing, equipping, and empowering others. Which is point nine on your outlines today. It's a very important point. Biblical leaders understand the need to appoint trustworthy guardians over the work. Now look again at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now when the wall had been built, Nehemiah left and quit. No, the wall had been built, I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. He had appointed already several groups of people. And then I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Nehemiah is still there, but he's giving authority, he's empowering, he's putting others to be guardians in certain areas. For he was more faithful and God-fearing a man than many. Now, Warren Wearsby, the commentator, in regards to these verses says, the walls were completed, the gates were restored, the enemy was chagrined, but Nehemiah's work was not finished. Well, wait a minute, I thought he came to build a wall. Yes, but there was a little bit more in store. 
Uh, Nehemiah had been steadfast in building the walls, in resisting the enemy, but now he needed to be steadfast in consolidating and conserving the game. Biblical leaders must understand the need to appoint trustworthy guardians. Because if you build it and leave it, Satan's going to try to reclaim it, isn't he? And that's just a thing that Christians forget again and again and again throughout church history. Too many times, churches have thrived under a dynamic leader and faltered when God sends that leader to another place. Amen? We've seen it again and again and again in church history. Um, This is why this point is such a vital leadership lesson. It is one we must stare in the face and warmly embrace. It is the difference between the work continuing and the work faltering. And so biblical leaders understand the need to appoint trustworthy guardians or the work that was painstakingly achieved in their presence will falter in their absence. 2 John 8. 2 John 8, I believe we have a slide for that, puts it plain, bold, and straight. 2 John 8, watch yourselves so you may not lose what you've worked for. You can work so hard and you can get so far and then if you're slack in the maintenance in the going forward, it can fall right back to the way it was. Over and over, we've seen in the book of Nehemiah the need for God's people to remain vigilant because the enemy is persistent. We've seen that again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday. And so too it is true that we must appoint trustworthy guardians so God's work flourishes after our time finishes. So, who did Nehemiah choose? Well, look again at verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Now, Ray Comfort, who you sometimes see on TV using the Ten Commandments to share the way of the Master to a stranger, that Ray Comfort said this regarding this verse. He said, The church needs men and women who are faithful to and fearful of nothing but God. The church needs men and women who are faithful to and fearful of nothing but God. Nehemiah knew that truth as well. And so he chose Hananiah and and, and Hanai because the Bible says they were more faithful and more God-fearing than many others around them. Friends, did you know that gates and walls are only as good as those who guard them. Yeah. Uh, Committees and ministries are only as good as the saints who serve on those ministries and committees. Which is why good leaders understand the need to appoint trustworthy guardians over God's work. So who should we choose? Who should we choose? Well, the Old Testament's answer is right here in Nehemiah 7. And the answer is, according to Nehemiah 7, we should choose the faithful. That's what you're looking for. When you're looking to put guardians in different ministries and committees, you should look for the faithful. Nehemiah looked for people who were more faithful and more God-fearing than their peers. And you know what? Those people are always available. They're always resident within a work of God. Now, the New Testament, how does it say we should do this? Who should we appoint? Well, you know what? Interestingly, it says exactly the same thing. It says it in different words, but it's exactly the same. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. 
What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So the Apostle Paul has been teaching what you've heard uh, from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to who? Entrust to what kind of people? Faithful people. Just like Old Testament Nehemiah 7, New Testament 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Entrust to faithful people who will do what? Teach others. You see there's three generations in that verse. There's Paul who's there and he's speaking to the people in front of them and he's discipling them and within them they're appointing others who will then go to another generation. Three generations. If we're just dependent on that one worker who's gifted, what happens when he's gone? Hmm. I have made 2 Timothy 2 my life verse. This is what I want to achieve for Jesus through my years on earth. I look, therefore, for faithful, hungry people to disciple. That's who I look for. That's who I pour into. That's who I come alongside. Friends, 2 Timothy 2.2 needs to be internalized so it is a non-negotiable aspect of every local church's spiritual DNA. So that what we have heard in the presence of many witnesses, we entrust to faithful people who will go on to teach others after us. So how do we apply this to Calvary Church? Calvary Church needs to be training up prayer warriors who will train other prayer warriors. So we think about we need prayer warriors, but do we think about training up other prayer warriors? Uh, who could you start praying with today so that they become Calvary's prayer warrior for tomorrow? If you're on the prayer team, and right now we have a couple people praying behind us in, in, in the conference room, and, and each week different people sign up, and there's two or three every week praying, who could you invite to come with you? Hey, I have a Sunday that I'm on the prayer team. Have you ever done that? Oh, no. Why don't you come with me that Sunday? You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. Just come and pray with us. How will we grow the prayer warriors if we do not disciple New prayer warriors. Let's say you come to intercede at our Wednesday prayer meeting. Praise God, that's been growing. Uh, since we've been here, we've seen more and more come. And we see them praying in more and more uh, overtly biblical and, uh, ways. Who could you be inviting with you? Say, I I'm going to be at the prayer meeting on Wednesday. Would you come with me? I'll drive you. I'll pick you up. We'll do dinner. We'll do coffee. Cheat if you need to. How do we raise up more prayer warriors, friends? Leadership development in the church does not happen magically. It happens intentionally. Listen to that. Leadership development in the church does not happen magically. It happens intentionally. Calvary needs to be training up prayer warriors. Calvary needs to be training up preachers. Okay? I'm your chief uh, teaching elder here at Calvary. I I'm your main preacher. And I am trying to raise up other preachers. Uh, we had a preaching class, and Jason was part of that preaching class, and Jason's gone over to some other churches, and he's shared what he has with those churches. He shared with our pulpit. Charlie Kroll went through that preaching class. Talked to Charlie. Charlie's now getting opportunities to preach one and two times every week, praise God. But we're trying to multiply the number of gospel workers. Uh, Lord willing, this January and February, we're going to take our elders and some others through another preaching class on Monday nights from 8 to 10. Pray that God would send us the people that He wants trained in that. We've invited another church, a small church, church that was 15 and now it's 45 and it needs elders and it needs leaders and it needs people to teach and lead and serve and preach. And, and, and so that pastor and I got together and I invited him to come and invite people in his church that, that, that God might be raising up to be elders. So, so would you pray with us that this would be a church that raises up preachers? Because New Jersey needs gospel preachers, amen? 
This idea of equipping and empowering needs to permeate and penetrate everything we do at Calvary. For instance, deacons and deaconesses. We need more deacons and deaconesses, don't we? We have a, a wonderful deacon. They're busy, they're active, they're reaching, they're bringing meals, they're writing cards, they're giving phone calls uh, as soon as someone has an issue. And many times before I know someone has an issue, one of our deacons and deaconesses has stopped by and already dealt with the issue and tells me that that was the issue because they're that uh, active in our church. But what if you did this, deacon or deaconess? What if you said, I'm going to go visit so-and-so this week and I'm going to invite this other person to come with me so they can learn how to do that because it's scary the first time you do that, isn't it? And, and maybe I'm going to invite them several times until they get comfortable. And then guess what? There'd be two of you. And so there'd be more deacons and deaconesses trained up, raised up, ready to go when they're needed. Philosophically, God's people need to become equippers and not just receivers. Hey, philosophically, God's people need to become equippers and not just hardworking doers. If we are going to reach people for Jesus and it is going to outlast us, we are going to have to disciple others to replace us and replicate us. Amen? That's just the way it is. That's the way it is. And to do that, we need to keep our eye out for the faithful. We need to pour into those who are hungry for Christ and His kingdom. Those are the people you ought to invest in. Rather than spending your time cheerleading the disaffected, Pour your life into the spiritually hungry. God will bring those people into your life. Do, do you remember the, the, the discipleship funnel of Jesus? Some of you took my, uh, my class in Mission of the Church, and we talked about the discipleship funnel of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you're going to see that Jesus spent more and more time with fewer and fewer people on purpose. He had a funnel in His discipleship. Yes, Jesus ministered to the crowds, but he didn't spend the bulk of his time. He spent more time with the, the 72. He sent out two by two. And then he spent even more time with the 12. And within the 12, there was the three, Peter, James, and John, that he spent even more time investing in. And within the 12, there was the one. Who was that? It was John, the one he especially loved. Now, I want you to think about Jesus' discipleship funnel that he spent more time investing in the more hungry. How did that work out? Okay. The crowds went from saying Hosanna to crucify Him in a single week. If He spent all His time with His crowds, He wouldn't have gotten very far. And then the 72, they probably formed the nucleus of the 120 who are praying in the upper room when the church is birthed in Acts chapter 2. Eleven of the twelve disciples that our Lord invested in most heavenly, they set the world on fire for the Gospel in their generation. Peter, James, and John, who received even greater investments than the other twelve, well, they went on to become three pivotal pillars in the early church, if you read the book of Acts. And then there is John, the one that Jesus especially loved, especially invested in. I'm going to tell you, Jesus saw potential in John because out of all the disciples, he wasn't established in his career. He wasn't established in the community. He was a young man. He's somebody that you might look past. But Jesus looked at him and he invested in him. He took a special interest in young John. And John turned out to be the most fruitful of all the apostles Jesus invested in in the Gospels. One verse of John's Gospel has led more people to Christ than any other verse in all the Bible. And that verse is John 3.16. Where would we be without John 3.16? We would probably see the game better if you're sitting behind some people. But nonetheless, uh, 
John wrote a, uh, two books. He wrote, he wrote the Gospel of John, two books in particular out of the, the several he wrote. He wrote the Gospel of John explaining how to be saved. That's pretty important, right? And then he wrote 1 John to say, how do I know I'm saved? Perhaps there are two no greater questions that a person could ever answer than how do I get saved and how do I know I'm saved? And that was John. And then John wrote a last book. What was it called? It was called... Revelation. And it's the capstone of all of God's revelation. It's pulling together all the great promises of God from all throughout Scripture and how they're fully, finally, and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And we can stand back and even though the world falls apart, we can say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because we've read the end of the story and it ends in glory and Jesus wins. And who wrote that? John, the one you and I might look past because he wasn't all that to look at when Jesus pulled him along. But he was hungry, he was ready he was willing to listen, and so Jesus kept investing in that hungry disciple. Now, if we're going to follow Jesus, the Bible says that we're to be like Jesus, we must remember that Jesus spent his life intentionally investing in the hungry. If we're going to be like Paul, and what does the Bible say about Paul? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. You need to remember that everywhere Paul went ministering, I mean, he's a church planter par excellence, he's in a town for two weeks, and there's a church. He's, he's, he's a theologian par excellence. He writes 13 of your New Testament books. Uh, Paul is, a, is an amazing minister, and yet everywhere that Paul went, there's an eager brother being discipled every single time. Sometimes it was Timothy. Sometimes it was Titus. Sometimes it was Epaphroditus. But Paul was always leading the way by showing the way so others would become leaders after he no longer was in that location. And since this is true, I'm going to ask you, Christian, who are you mentoring? Who are you mentoring? Who is your Timothy? Who is your Titus? Who is your Epaphroditus? Now, Nehemiah looked no further than his own brothers. Listen again to Nehemiah 7.2. I gave my brother Hanai and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Friends, maybe your primary effort right now in discipleship ought to be your own children or your grandchildren. I don't know. For Nehemiah, it was his brother. I don't know who this person is in your life, but there ought to be someone God has providentially positioned in your life who has a particular interest in the things of God right now. And that is the person God wants you to pour into. Do all that you can to fan into flames their gifts to the glory of God. Now, if you can't think of anyone, if you got, I just don't know who my Timothy is, then I want you to start praying about that. Start praying for God to reveal you who your Timothy is, who you need to be pouring into regularly, intentionally, and strategically. We've said this before, but the God of nature is the God of Scripture. Amen? So look at the God of nature. The God of nature has decreed that a single corner, kernel of corn, diligently sown, patiently watered, carefully weeded, what's that going to grow into? That's going to grow into an ear of corn where over 800 new kernels of corn will be produced. Through the one, carefully done, 800 more God has in store. Over and over and over again. And in like manner, if we have received the good seed of the Gospel, Jesus says it should be bearing a crop 30, 60, 100 fold what was sown in us. But for many of us, we're content to be receivers instead of equippers, or we're content to be busy doers instead of equippers. And the work stops when we stop. And that's not God's plan. Are you investing Jesus' gospel in making kingdom returns? Are we laboring for the Master from the dawn to the setting sun? 
Or is the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life choking out our fruitfulness? There was an old pioneer missionary. He wasn't perfect. He had lots of flaws. His name was C.T. Studd. But he said this, and it's always stuck with me. C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you doing with your life? Who are you mentoring for Jesus Christ? Now, just as surely as, as biblical leaders need to appoint guardians over the work for it to continue beyond our tenure, so too must biblical leaders understand the need to lay out wise guidelines over how the work is to be handled. Wise guidelines. That brings us to point 10 on our outlines today, the, the, the final one that we're going to tackle today. Number 10 is this. Biblical leaders understand the need for laying out wise guidelines over how the work is to be handled. Wise guidelines over how the work is to be handled. Look at verse 2 for a moment, and we're going to then zero in on verse 3. The Bible says, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hanai, the governor of the castle, charge. He, he empowered them. He appointed them. He empowered them. Uh, they were given opportunity to win and fail because they were more faithful and God-fearing than many. He gave charge of Jerusalem to faithful folks so that when he wasn't there, there would be people that knew what they were doing to carry on. Nehemiah wasn't gone yet, but he empowered others to take charge. They were given responsibility. They were given authority. And they knew what they were supposed to do in that role. Now the question is, how were they supposed to do it? And that's verse 3. Verse 3 gets very specific, almost pedantic when you read the story of how specific he gets. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. And appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The point is, these folks were given very clear guidelines. They knew what to do. These guidelines were somewhat surprising, but they were highly strategic. You see, normally, most cities in the ancient world, they opened their gates at first light. At dawn's early light, the gates would open. Why? Because you can make more money that if the gates open as soon as it's dawn, then more vendors will come in, more wares will get sold, and you don't shut those gates until the last light of the day ends so you can get maximum retail therapy out of the day. You follow? Cha-ching, cha-ching, dusk to dawn. But then Nehemiah doesn't say do that. Nehemiah says to do something different. He, he says, he, Nehemiah knows that the enemy will stop at nothing to destroy God's work. And so Nehemiah gave orders that would take no chances to the holy city. Listen to verse 3 again. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. That is, only open the doors several hours after sunrise. Why? So we can see with clarity if there are any enemy lurking in the bush waiting to attack the city. The practical principle was this. Wait until God heats the rocks before you throw open the locks. Pretty simple. They could remember it. Very strategic. All right? What about closing the gates? He also gave practical principles about that. When it was time to close the gates, make sure you have all the night watchmen in position first. Don't ever get lackadaisical about this task. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, 
Let them shut the gate and bar the door. Don't go home from your post until the city is secured each night. The essence of the instruction is this. Give the enemy no quarter. Presume that no time is completely safe. Take extra precautions because it is easier to remain vigilant than it is to repel insurgents. Amen? Church of the living God, it's easier to remain vigilant than it is to repel insurgents. Did you hear that? Be very careful. The holy city had times when it was most vulnerable. The most vulnerable for the city was at night, in the dark, when it was hard to see the enemy. And so Nehemiah had special orders, special guidelines for that situation as well. He says there's to be two types of centuries. Those stationed at critical points along the wall, and there was supposed to be a neighborhood watch who could rapidly react to things out of the ordinary in their vicinity. Listen again to verse 3. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The neighborhood watch and the specially posted people. Friends, sadly, the Bible and church history teach that the people of God are often too lax in protecting what God has enabled them to achieve. The sad history of our institutions bears this reality very clearly. Did you know Harvard was founded to train Puritan pastors? How's it doing in that mission? When Harvard began failing, a group split off and they formed a new school. It was called Yale to train Bible-believing, gospel-preaching pastors. How's it doing in that mission? Uh, uh, After that, there was the Great Awakening and, and people saw that you needed a heartfelt, you needed to be born again, you needed to have a personal trust in Christ. They looked over, Harvard had fallen, Yale had fallen, and some, some people said, we're going to start a new school to train ministers who are white hot for the gospel, and that school was Princeton. How's it doing in its mission? Thereafter, there was a revival among the Dutch Reformed Church, and, and, and so they said, we're going to train up ministers who, who are white hot embers, not cold, dead orthodoxy. And that school was called Rutgers. How's it doing? in its mission. And then there was a school called Dartmouth. Do you know how Dartmouth was founded? It was founded to train Native Americans to be missionaries to their own people. Friends, somewhere along the way, all those schools, well, they lost their way. And sadly, it's not just schools. Even churches can lose their gospel focus. Faithful folks empty their wallets and they wear out their backs stacking bricks to make an ornate edifice complete with stained glass and and beautiful, whimsical pipe organs. But if the pulpit is not protected, if it is not guarded, that beautiful building is just one generation from advocation. Many once vibrant gospel centers no longer preach the Bible at all. And in time, they get converted. When the last little old lady passes away, they become trendy lofts and antique shops and microbreweries, don't they? Yeah. A.B. Simpson's once powerful gospel tabernacle, the man who founded Nyack College, his powerful gospel tabernacle that used to be in the very heart of New York City is now a two-story pizzeria. It's across the street from the Phantom of the Opera on West 44th and 8th Avenue. If you want to have a very pretty aesthetics while you have pretty reasonable pizza, go to John's Pizza. The gospel's not preached there anymore. We must be very careful, but for the grace of God goes 
Calvary too. Friends, God has no grandchildren. We must pass the baton or in our location it will be gone. Since biblical leaders give practical guidelines, it raises the question for us here today. If you are on a committee or you are serving in a ministry, what wise guidelines are you establishing in those ministries so that they will outlast you to the glory of God? Uh, perhaps you're wondering, well, what would a wise guideline look like? I mean, they're talking about locks and, 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 and keeping the city safe, and we're talking about ministries at Calvary in 2018. Okay, it's a fair question. Let, let's pick one of our ministries. Let's pick our worship ministry, because you saw them on stage already. So, so we have this worship ministry, and we said we need some wise guidelines. How are we going to do worship? And we got together, and we prayed about it, and we thought about it, and then we started to inculcate it within our worship leaders and our worship members. And we've given them three specific guidelines that we're shooting for. We don't always hit it. We don't do it perfectly, but three guidelines we shoot for Sunday in and Sunday out. We endeavored together towards three non-negotiable principles, and they are this, that our musical selections be theologically compatible, that everything be congregation singable, and that our parts be interchangeable. You've all heard that if you're part of our worship ministry. Now the first one, theologically compatible. This means we don't sing just what we want or like musically. We try to sing what's true biblically. And those two don't always live in the same field. We try to sing what is in accord with sound doctrine. Even if that means we're not always able to integrate everything that's on the radio, even the Christian radio. Uh, some things, friends, are musically wonderful, but they're theologically awful <laughs> and so we try to purge that we try to purge that which is toe tapping but biblically chin scratching we try secondly we try to ensure that we sing a tune that's congregation singable as a philosophy of ministry we've rejected the paradigm of a sage on the stage where the congregation passively watches someone who sings professionally that's not what we're trying to do at Calvary. Instead, we ask our worship leaders to try to equip the saints, to enable the saints to sing praises to Jesus together. We want to cultivate worshipers, not merely watch performers. It's a conscious decision at Calvary. Um, that doesn't mean there's no place for special music. It just means that special music doesn't supplant trying to get you to sing in spirit and truth, making a joyful noise to Jesus. That's what we try to do at Calvary. Uh, lastly, we talk about having the parts be interchangeable. And what do we mean by that? We mean that um, we don't want for worship leader A to have his team, and worship leader B to have her team, and oh, this is Tom's Sunday, and that's Glenn's Sunday, and, and this over here is Julie's Sunday. And what happens when we do that? Well, a whole bunch of things happen when we do that, and they usually go in bad places. We want the parts to be interchangeable. So you'll see different singers and different musicians serving with each of the different leaders. I'll tell you, it's easier if Tom always had a team because they'd know how to back each other up. And it would be easier if Glenn always had a team because they would know each other's rhythms, wouldn't they? It would be easier. But we deliberately make a schedule in pretty much the hardest way possible, talk to Wayne, <laughs> so that the parts are interchangeable because we believe it does some wonderful things. First of all, it makes us more flexible. When there's an illness, when there's an absence, different people can stand in for each other. But the most important reason, the primary reason, is so that we don't crave some Sundays and complain about others. We make them all awful, so they're even. <laughs> Just like the preaching. 
Friends, we don't want Glenn's team. We don't want Tom's team. We don't want Julie's team. We want Jesus' team. Helping us, leading us, so that we worship Jesus together. Amen? That may not be as slick as some places can do. But it's a lot more biblical in that we cultivate worshipers instead of excellent performance. Now this kind of thinking is not just for our worship team. If you go committee by committee, Calvary has tried to move ministry by ministry and committee by committee, appointing and empowering people and, and, and trying to lay out godly guidelines within the worship committee. We, we looked at, hey, we revised our whole worship, uh, excuse me, within our missions committee, we, we revised our whole missions uh, guidelines and we, we wanted to make sure every missionary every year is able to articulate they're called, committed, Christ-like. Uh, and we have structures and every October it goes out and we ask them certain things and to respond in a certain way, uh, we've put out certain things, certain guidelines that we think are going to make us better at doing those things. We're never going to outgrow this. If you serve in a ministry at Calvary, if you're in a committee at Calvary, this is something you need to start praying through. How does our ministry or committee develop practical biblical guidelines to the glory of God? We see this in Nehemiah 7, and we need to see this right here. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus appointed and empowered the 12, and he did the same for the 72. And each time, he gave those people very clear guidelines. Turn with me for just a moment to Luke chapter 10. Turn to Luke chapter 10. It's in the New Testament. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 1104, I believe. Page 1104. Jesus appoints the 72, and then he spends many verses telling them specifically what to do. Luke chapter 2 says, or excuse me, Luke chapter 10 says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he was about to go. Now skip down to verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs amidst the wolves. Here's what you should do. Here's your guidelines. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whenever you enter a house, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house seeking a better deal. Wherever you enter a town, they will receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nonetheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for on that town. Jesus appointed the 72 and he gave them very clear guidelines on what they were to do. It was very specific. This is how your ministry needs to work. So today we've seen from Nehemiah chapter 7, we've seen that biblical worder, work, uh, work, leaders uh, appoint trustworthy guardians over the work and they establish wise guidelines for the work. Friends, what happens if we don't do this? Oh, it's great. The Bible says do that. What happens if you don't do that? What happens if we fail to guard the gate? We fail to appoint faithful people who fear God more than men in their ministries. What happens if we don't bother to establish godly guidelines in those committees and ministries? And I, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 is what will happen. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 speaks of false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Friends, without watchers on the wall, we can grow complacent. And the enemy will try to bring in wolves where we need to have shepherds. Hired hands will be hired where there ought to be tireless gospel workers. Quarrelers will gain a, qu- a quarter where there ought to be the peaceful and the peacemaker. Dissension will replace unity in our church, and mischief will overtake worship. Have you ever seen a church that had that happen? Yeah. You see it in the New Testament churches? You see it in the churches today. You have to guard what God has done, or the enemy will try to take it away. Without guidelines for those watchers on the wall, we may find that our guardians are sleeping instead of guarding. Matthew 13, 25 will begin to happen in our church. Matthew 13, 25, the Lord Jesus gave us a parable. It's the parable of the weeds when He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then he went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And so the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather those weeds? But he said, No, lest in the gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. And bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat in my barn. Friends, Calvary needs to be wise in appointing faithful people. We need to empower people. We need to disciple people. If you're doing ministry, who could you be grooming to do it alongside you so that either they replace you or if you still have many more years of service so there's more of you. Wouldn't it be great to have two Tom Thomasons fixing things? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great to have two Jerry Capazzi's cheering us on? Wouldn't it be great? Go through Calvary Church and think about the people who've ministered to you, and wouldn't it be great if we had two, if we had three, if we had ten? Yes, it would. But how do we get those people? We do it by being intentional, because that's biblical. It's not magical. It won't happen unless we do it. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and then turn to the Savior and ask him to make Calvary a church that intentionally disciples people from top to bottom, that we take our gifts and we help others fan into flame their gifts, that God would make us a church that richly equips saints so that we have such an embarrassment of riches that we can easily help other places that need workers. Because the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray to the Lord of the harvest. I want you to turn and pray with your neighbor about these things, and in just a moment, I'll close us in prayer.